the delicate process including a thorough desalination process after seven decades in the Baltic seabed will take about a year, he said. Yeah. Uh, Wait, if uh, they found a fucking old-ass typewriter, how the fuck are they going to fucking restorate that? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it, it, it has a typewriter buttons on top. Oh. But on the side, it looks like pistons. Okay. Not where you see the big circle pistons inside of an engine, but the other things that I watch on Junkyard Digs where he would have to hammer it, and it's like a lever here, lever here, lever here, lever here, where it pops up and down. That's what one part of the side looks like. It looks like an engine part. Um, After that, the Enigma will go on display at the museum. Naval historian Jan Witt from the German Naval Association told DPA that he believes the machine, which has three rotors, would throw over was thrown overboard from a German warship in the final days of the war. It is less likely that it came from a scuttled uh, submarine, he said, because Hitler's U-boats used the more complex four-rotor Enigma machines. And, of course, there's a picture with the diver and the machine that he's got his flashlight on. And it looks like a... kind of like a typewriter, like, like I said. The other side looks like a machine from inside of a car or a truck or whatever with the engine. It's just weird. Uh, the Allied forces worked tirelessly to decrypt the codes produced by the Enigma machine, uh-huh. which were changed every 24 hours. British mathematician... Alan Turning see as the father of modern computing spread spearheaded mm. sorry a team at Britain's Park I can't say the other words but it's B L E T C H L E Y uh-huh. that cracked the code in 1941 the breakthrough helped the Allies decipher crucial radio messages about Germany, German military movements. Historians believed it shortened the war by about two years. Uh-huh. The story was turned into a 2014 movie called The Ignition Game. Never heard of it. Starring Oscar nominee British actor Benedict Cumberbatch <laughs> as Turning. Uh-huh. And that's it for that story. 
But yeah, that, that this thing, like I said, it's part typewriter on top. Yeah. And on the side right here, it looks like the things I, I explained yeah. that you see on a car. From that long integrated piece on each side where the piston's supposed to be and you have your spark plugs and everything there. Yeah. That's what this machine looks like. Okay. On my side, for more dark news, we're going to a little bit of tech news. Which was um, written by Michelle Wiener. I'm saying that's part of her name. Danielle Wiener, part of her name. W-I-E-N-E-R, as in Wieners. We have a Wiener. Danielle Wiener Broner, CNN Business. Of course, this is update November 11th. Go figure. Like I said, I have a lot of fucking shit, uh, dark news to read. Anyway. New York CNN Business. McDonald's wants to improve drive-through speeds. To help customers, of course, but also in hopes of getting them to show up more often and spend more when they visit. Uh, not me. I don't need that shit. On Monday, the chain unveiled its plans for a better drive through experience during an investor update. It's testing express lines for people who place digital orders ahead of time, as well as dedicated pickup spots and automated ordering. The drive through has become even more important for restaurant chains during uh, the shit sandwich of the, of the year, when people want to avoid dining, dining rooms and prefer contactless payment. For McDonald's, uh, MCD for fucking abbreviations which that MCD sounds like a mental health disorder it could also help solve a pre <laughs> shit sandwich problem losing customers to rivals prior to the crisis the company was losing customers to fast casual dining and higher-end burger joints. It was also facing more competition during breakfast, the most important meal of the day for fast food companies. Again, I would not be eating that shit. The number of transactions at its U.S. restaurants opened at least 13 months slipped 1.9% in 2019, according to a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission. The promise of a swift, seamless experience plus new products, like the McPlant... I can't believe I'm actually going to say this. The McPlant... Plant-based burger and crispy chicken sandwich... Mm, nope. Which the company unveiled Monday 
could help bring customers back, noted Morningstar analyst R.J. Hotavoy. McDonald's has already made improvement in its drive-thrus. Over the past few years, it's sped up the drive-thru line by about 30 seconds. Um, okay. Thanks to part of a sim simpler menu. But it's not the fastest among other quick service chains. According to a recent study by the market research group C-Level HX, it took about 349 seconds to get through a McDonald's drive through on average this year. According to the group's 2020 drive through report, which based its findings on about 1,500 visits to 10 restaurant chains, at Burger King, or Burger Death, Burger Crap, Burger Shit, it took about 344 seconds, and even less at KFC and Taco Hell. Colonel fucking chicken! McDonald's has also been beefing up, shouldn't be a fucking phrase, in a fucking sentence, its tech portfolio to further improve its drive throughs Last year, McDonald's acquired two AI companies. One, Dynamic Yield, okay, has allowed the company to rule out digital menu boards that can recommend orders based on weather, how busy the restaurant is, and other factors. The suggestions could encourage people to spend more. Again, not this person. Not me either. The other, Penetate, will help McDonald's use automation rather than employees to take orders in the drive-thru. The chain is also testing concepts for restaurants that have little or no seating and are dedicated just to drive-thru delivery and pickup. But competition is fierce. McDonald's is not alone in seeking to upgrade its drive throughs Taco Hell, Burger Shit, and Popeyes. Another shit experience from a restaurant, if I ever heard of it. Have also announced plans to redo their drive throughs to focus even more on speed and convenience. And that's it for that story. So, in other words, they got fucking rope. They got robots. To do what the fucking employees are supposed to do. <clears throat> Which is really fucking stupid. Mm -hmm. I don't give a shit how they fucking improve. I am not eating that shit. Well, I did once, but one, I was a kid. Two, my first wrestling promoter, uh, Smokey Jim, 
got word from my lovely brothers, Alex and Richie, that I wasn't eating like I should have been. But I was fucking eating like a goddamn horse. Mm. Or, wait, they're... Be oh, wait. Smokey Jim said, well, your brothers are saying you don't eat enough. One, I don't eat breakfast simply because I don't feel like it. And two, it's a habit I picked up since I started high school. Three, I was wrestling all the time. And uh, being Alex's manager. I mean, I did eat. Paramount can even tell you I was eating. But, one night, he decided to fucking order me four fucking hamburgs, only ketchup and fucking, and fucking ketchup, and, um, fucking pickles. And four fucking large fries. I don't want to fucking eat it. Mm. But he wasn't going to let me, he wasn't going to move the car until I ate it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still waiting to get uh, Richie on that one. <laughs> I just don't know what spell of throwing food at him I want yet. <laughs> yes, I know I can actually do it from where I'm sitting. Yes, you can. And Richie knows I can do it. She can. The, this story from sciencealert.com. Uh. Ancient lake discovered under Greenland, maybe millions of years old. Holy crap. Scientists say. <laughs> and it, this article was done by Peter Dockrill. The remains of a great ancient lake have been discovered under Greenland, buried deep below the ice sheet. Well, no shit, it'd be below the fucking ice. <laughs> In the northeast of the country, and estimated to be hundreds of thousands of years old. If not millions, scientists say. The huge fossil lake bed is a phenomenon the likes of which scientists haven't seen before in this part of the world. Even though we know the colossal Greenland ice sheet, the world's second largest after Antarctica's, remains full of mysteries hidden under its frozen lid. While shedding mass of an alar alarming alarming pace, so it's shedding its ice shits all over the place. Last year, <laughs> last year, scientists reported the discovery of over fifty subglacial lakes beneath the Iceland ice bed or Graceland ice bed ice sheet. Sorry. Bodies of thawed liquid water trapped beneath the rock bed yeah. and the ice sheet overhead. The new find is of a different nature. An ancient lake basin, long, dry, and now full of eons of sedimentary infill, loose rock measuring up to 1.2 kilometers three-quarters of a mile, thick, and then covered by another 1.8 kilometers of ice. There's a fucking spectrograph, and holy shit. 
Paramax, come here since you know how to read these things. It shows what I'm looking at. Basically, what they're talking about. Jesus Christ. 77 degrees north by 78 degrees north. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you got the spookly things. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. And you got the thing in red, which is the ice bed. Right, and that's the, the what's in red is supposed to be the location yeah. of the item. And the blue just represents not the area you're supposed to go yeah. in. It, it's weird how they do things like that. Yeah. Which really confuses the hell out of me. I'm not a scientist, but I, I understand science. It's just weird that they have to put it that way. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I mean, in the story above, which what I was looking at in show Paramite, the lake basin which is that line in red, fed by ancient streams, which is in blue. When the lake formed long ago, however, the region would have been free of ice. Researchers say, but the basin would have supported a monumental lake with a sprawling surface area of approximately 7,100 uh, 7, square kilometers. That's 2,741 square miles. Yeah, 2,741 square miles. Something like that. That's about the same size as the combined area of U.S. states Delaware and Rhode Island. And this massive lake would have, been, would have held about 580 cubic kilometers... That's 139 cubic miles of water being fed by a network of at least 18 ancient streams that once existed to the north of the lake bed, following into it along the sloping escarpment. Uh, While there's no way of knowing right now just how ancient this lake is, or if it filled and drain numerous times, we might be able to find out if we could analyze the loose rock material now inside the basin. A giant time capsule of preserved sediment that could give us some clues at, about the environment of Greenland roughly for, forever ago. That makes no sense for the end of a fucking paragraph. This could be an important repository of information in a landscape that right now is totally concealed and inaccessible. No shit. Said lead researcher and glacial ge geophysicist Guy Paxman from Columbia University. If we could get at those sediments, we could they could tell us when the ice was present or absent. Did you just figure it out by fucking looking at it? <laughs> the giant lake bed dumped Camp Century Basin. And Miles Rogers just say Camp Crystal Lake. In reference to a nearby historic military research base. 
was identified via observa observations from NASA's Operation Ice Bridge mission, an airborne survey of the world's polar regions. When the hell did NASA start doing that shit? Don't know. During flights over the Greenland ice sheet, the team mapped the subglacial geo uh, geomorphology morphologically. Oh, geomorphology morpho. Bleh. Words are hard. Take a drink. I fucking stubble. <laughs> geomorphologically or psychology. How you want to fucking. You know, same fucking spell almost. But you got more geomorph logically over the ice using a range of instruments re measuring radar, gravity, and magnetic data. The readings revealed the outline of the giant loose mass of sedimentary in infill composed of less dense and less magnetic material than the harder rock surrounding the mass. It's possible, the team thinks, that the lake formed in warmer times as a result of bedrock displacement due to a fault lying underneath, which is now dormant. Alternatively, glacial erosions might have carved the shape of the basin over time. Mm. In either side, in either case, the researchers believe the ancient basin could hold an important sedimentary record. And if we can somehow drill down deep enough to extract and analyze it, it may indicate when the region was ice-free or ice-covered, reveal constraints of the extent of the Greenland ice sheet, and offer insights into past climate and environmental conditions in the region. Whatever secrets those deeply buried rocks can tell us about polar climate change in the ancient past could have, could be vital information for interpreting what's happening in the world right now. I highly doubt it. I don't think so. We're working to try and understand how the Greenland ice sheet has behaved in the past, says Paxton. It's not a fucking dog that you have to fucking try to train. It's important if we want to understand how it will behave in future decades. The findings the findings are reported in Earth and Planetary Science Letters. That's the end of that one. Well, since we're talking scientific stuff... Yeah. I got one from scientificmirror.com. Okay, shoot. And it says, Experts unrevealed... The mystery of a lost World War II submarine and its 80 vanished crew members. Now, a lot of you are probably thinking, oh, that's, that has to deal with something with the Bermuda Triangle and shit. 
Well, I don't know, but we're going to find out. It's June 2019, and Tim Taylor and his team were looking for a U.S. submarine that disappeared in a mysterious and tragic circumstances. They're using a remotely controlled underwater vehicle to help in the search. But as the machine travels through the depth, it's frustratingly develops a fault. Yeah. Well, that's what normally underwater drones do. Depends on how far it went down. So, Taylor brings the craft back to the surface and takes a glance at the data that it's recorded. Then he spots two strange inconsistencies that prompt him to send down yet another probe. Or in this case, another drone. And what the technical... Logically, finally, unearthed is enough to make their hairs on their arms stand on end. Now, is this paranormal? Who knows? The sub that the researchers and technicians were searching for was the USS Grayback. Or the SS two hundred eight. Yeah, we've yeah I uh, either me, it was me or you fucking read that a couple of episodes ago. Uh, I don't remember. Because it sounds a little too familiar. Mm, hold on, let me go back a little further. On January twenty eighth, nineteen forty four. Yeah. We did that oh yeah. One. We did that one already. Yeah, okay. Well, he's looking for another one. Another well, scratch that idea. I got one that might um, interest some Bible thumpers. Hold on. King David era fort found in Golan. Maybe first evidence of Bible's Geshurites. the hell is that? I don't know. Let me read. Could stunning stone etching of two horned individuals at prayer found at mouth of their circa 11th century citadel in Israel's north could predate famous Geshurite Tel Bethsida. Dating Dating to around the time of King David 3,000 years ago. What may be the earliest fortified settlement of the Golan Heights was recently discovered during salvage excavations ahead of the construction of a new neighborhood. Incredible rock etchings of two figures holding their arms aloft. Basically, prairie. Possibly a prayer with what could be a moon were uncovered inside the unique fort, which was dated to circa 11th 
Okay, this kind of doesn't make sense. 11th 9th century B BCE. Okay, oh, before oh, Christ existed maybe? Yeah. But it should it should be 9th to 11th century, not 11th through to 9th century. Makes some sense. Hey, back then people were stupid in writing. The striking full the striking find is being tentatively linked to the Geshurite people whose capital is recorded in the Bible, Bible, as having been located nearby, to the north of the Sea of Galilee. Galilee. In a brief Hebrew video about the discovery, did co-director Brecht Tizin said that when the etching was found near the entrance of the fort, we understood that we had something very, very important. We were astonished to discover a rare and exciting find. A large basalt st stone with a uh, Semitic engraving of two horned figures with outspread arms. Why would there be two horned figures praying where it was a sight of something in the Bible? <laughs> Don't know. Don't Somebody say. write in and, and explain that one to me. Because more and more uh, people that I've ancestored from is proving that we started the, started the stuff that's being celebrated around now. And I know I just heard Richie tell me to calm down. Shut up! <laughs> you know I'm in a, in a go-fuck-it-all mood, so don't try me, bro. Next to the etching... I know I could have sworn I just heard him. When he hears this, I'm say, he's saying, bring it. You know I can bring it, bro. Next to the etching was discovered a stone table or shelf, which the archaeologist... Archaeolot, bleh, take a drink of stubble. Archaeologicus believe as an altar upon which was found another seemingly ritual object of a small figure holding what looks to be a drum. Just which people manned the fort Built a large basalt, built of large basalt boulders with a with almost 1.5 meter wide walls. It's still an open question. IAA scientific advisor in the northern region, Ron Bier, told the Times of Israel on Wednesday. The minute the Egyptian and his... <coughs> Pardon me. Hold on. Let me take a drink. Ugh, much better. The minute that Egyptian and Hittite empires were destroyed, there is a big vacuum. There is no historian that writes the history of the era... And we return to a sort of prehistory, which is in quotes, 
in which we only have physical artifacts to base our assumptions upon. So we go into the realm of speculation. It is impossible to know what really happened, said Pierre. Now, I'm going to read the next set, the second sentence again. Or the first and second sentence. Fuck it, I'll read the whole fucking thing. Just so I got a point. The minute the, that Egyptian and Hittite empires are destroyed, there is a big vacuum. That means there is no historian that writes the history of the era and we return to a sort of prehistory in which we only have physical artifacts to base our assumptions upon. So we go into the realm of speculation. It is impossible to know what really happened. Again, I love uh, LaForge, uh, even though he was my teacher and quite a few subjects in high school. But that just proved my theory right. Even though he gave me a fucking C-plus on the fucking paper. There isn't fucking anything that's recorded from back then. There weren't even scientists 3,000 years ago. No. The small fort was built on a hilltop that would have served as a lookout at a stri strategic river crossing location at the E.L. AI River Canyon. Pierre said the fort itself is evidence of the era of conflict and struggle for control that began after the fall of the Northern Hittite Empire in uh, Kansura 11, 1180 BCE. Bear told the Times of Israel that his dating of the site in circa 11th slash or 9th century BCE was made based on physical evidence, mostly the plentiful pottery sh shards, which point to the early Iron Age and are somewhat comparable with those found at Israelite sites such as Mel. Meg Megado, tell Megado that are dated in circa 11th or 10th century BCE. The ability to identify the pottery is limited. What the fuck do you think pottery is made from? Fucking rock. Clay. What's what's clay? It's fucking rock. We don't have many comparisons, Pierre continued. This is an era of... Oh, I love this one. This is an era of foggy history. <laughs> How about you just label it history you're not even sure on? As small city-states attempted to fill the vacuum created by the splintering of the Hittite Empire in the north and the 
Egyptian Empire in the south. Among the peoples fighting for a foothold were the, were the uh, Gesserites, a group of Arameans whose capital city was in today's Bethsida, just north of the Sea of Galilee. It is possible, said Bierre, that the Hespin, also known as Hispen, fort belonged to the Gesserite people or another Gamamean group. There is set scant physical evidence of these peoples of these people during its era and no outside textile document documentation other than various cita uh, cit citations in the Hebrew Bible. The problem is the biblical text is not I'm going to repeat that again. The problem is the biblical text is not a historical document. Rather theological and was written by lines of kings who had their own agenda, said Bierre. Therefore, we must rely on physical artifacts. And if Bishop Davis ever heard me say, uh, heard me say this once, in front of his fucking sec, uh, in front of his home, <laughs> and he tried to say he could prove me wrong, mm. I never got that proof. And I'm reading right in front of it. I was right. Uh huh. Years later. While the the real uh, Israelite artifacts of the area well known. There are many fewer remains left by the Aramean people. It's supposed to be people, but they got peoples. The closest comparisons to the cultural evidence of the fort are found at the Tel Bethsida archaeological site. Oh, I could say it that way. In 2019, a a very similar-looking similar stone etching of a horned figure with outstretched arms and what appears to be a moon was discovered at Tel Bethsida by archaeologist uh, Remy Arev of Nebraska University. The steep the steel, likewise, was erected next to a raised platform, Bama, or Bama, however you want to pronounce it, near the impressive city gate. Come here, Paramount. I'm going to show you this. I'm going to show you this stone, and it really does look like a horned figure, because you see the two horns here, the head, arms, and what looks like feet. Buddha. Uh, yep, I just hit it once. Cultic steel of Besseda discovered in blah blah blah. And it does look like it's supposed to be a moon. Or kneeling to something like a moon. 
I see something different. What do you see different? I see like a circled head with a body of a lizard. That's what I see. I don't see no horns. I see horns. I don't. <laughs> I don't see no horns on the damn thing. All yeah. I see is like a circle head with a with an uh, a lizard body. Okay. Because it has a tail. Okay, Gesser, Geshir, is noted in the Bible through the po- politically motivated marriage of Geshur King Tomai's daughter, Micah, to King David. The 10th century BCE Besida thereafter allied itself with King David and his dynasty, the House of David. One noteworthy mention of Geshar in the Bible is as a place of refuge to King David and Micah's son, Absalom, after the murder of his half-brother, Amnon, to avenge the rape of his sister, Tamar. In 2, in two Samuel 8, 15.8, the prince speaks to his father, King David, saying, For I vowed a vow while residing in Gesar, which is in Aram, saying, If the Lord would bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will worship the Lord. Which means, when I kill the motherfucker, I'm going to do whatever. <laughs> Other known Gesar cities are found along the Sea of Galilee shore, including Tel and Gev, Tel Hadar, and Tel Sarag. But in the Galen such Golan's such sites are hardly known, according to the IAA press release. The sole potential evidence. For the historical veris, ver, uh, veracity for King David, the Tell Dead Steel, which was written after 870 BCE and mentions a triumph over the House of David, was discovered at another uh, Aramean settlement in the Kingdom of Aram in northern Israel. Until now, very few sites have been found in, in the Golan. Pierre carefully proposes that the new fort, which he is, he is calling Nov Hespin, after the two adjacent settlements, is a bit earlier than the well-dated best in a site. This is my impression. But we are very clear in the research, very early in the research, and have no clear cl- conclusions yet. Yeah, no fucking shit! <laughs> what is clear, he said, is the site's importance as a national treasure that must be conserved. According to the IAA press release, the Housing and Construction Ministry and the IAA are already busy planning an open-air 
archaeology site that can be enjoyed by visitors. In modern Israel and in Golan, in particular, we are breast. We are breast. Blessed. <laughs> <laughs> we are blessed. Bouncy, bouncy, bouncy. With a lot of development and construction. Often at the expense of the ar archaeological sites. This site is a national treasure, and the IAA is going to do everything it can to make sure it is not hit too. Said Pierre. And that's it. Hmm. So what I just read, I was fucking right. Creepage. <laughs> uh, well, here's a story. Okay. Ex-police dog keeps barking at tree. Then investigators rush towards it. You want to know why? And it's got the pictures here of a tree. And the picture of the tree, but in a different way of looking uh -huh. at it. And it looks like there's something inside the tree. I just can't tell what the hell it is. But it says, uh, it starts here, how the dog was born into, into the police department. Yeah. Born into an ex-police dog's family, Kyle had a loyalty imprinted in his mind even as a pup. Here's Kyle, an adorable 10-year-old German Shepherd who has retired from duty and now spending his last days in a beautiful countryside with lots of great views. Yeah, countrysides usually have that. Yeah. He is in care of a loving couple, the Smiths, who couldn't help but fall in love with him at first sight. And that usually happens. Yeah. Kyle misses his years as a police dog. Yeah, a lot uh -huh. of dogs probably do that. What he misses more is his work partner and best buddy who's behind with him or whose bond with him runs deep. Kyle spent most of his years offering significant service to the police force with John's help. That must have been his partner or something. Probably. Helping to solve countless cases and finding multiple missing per people and now that Kyle's that Kyle is miles away from his partner, he needs a perfect plan if he would ever get to see him again. The question is, how would he archive his aim? Would Kyle ever get to see John again? Born with no worries, you know what they say about destiny and how it has how it has its way of always coming true. Sometimes I wonder now. Hmm. Kyle was born one 
Kyle was born for one purpose. One he wasn't aware of in the moment he first opened his eyes, but later got to find out where his path in life will be. Kyle was born into a German Shepherd family. He was born a happy pup with no worries. And seeing this picture, it's cute. Little tiny ankle biter. <laughs> but fluffy. Uh, this story goes on forever, I think. <laughs> Destined to project. Kyle might be clueless at first as a pup. But he, uh, but he knew he was destined for a far greater purpose as he grew. He slowly learned about his family and his environment. Kyle came from a family of ex-police dogs. His mother was an accomplished retired police dog. Kyle was ready to undertake the family tradition. However, not all his brothers and sisters completed the police academy training. He dared himself face the challenge and make his family proud. Yeah, all three little happy fluff balls. <laughs> it's a cool picture. But to the fact this story does goes on and on and on, I doubt if we'll get to the tree. But I'm going to post this story up on our website, everythingparanormal.gear.host backslash ep.html. Um, soon, I am working on a news page for it. It's taking me some time. Yeah. But going back to the main picture of the tree which is really weird I mean I've seen night visions I've seen x-rays for certain things but this picture takes the cake okay literally come here I'll show you I mean this picture literally takes the cake from looking in at an old tree to the way they have it now. Yeah. Here's the first picture. Okay. Looks like an ordinary tree, right? Yeah. But it looks like it has doors. Or yeah. an outline of something. Here's the second picture. Okay. What do you see? Without saying anything, what do you see? Huh. That's the weird part. Now, this is a... A highly sophisticated. Thank you. The words are hard. Of a type of either a night vision way or uh -huh. a really fucking ultra x-ray of a tree for what's inside. Which is nuts. Yeah. But that is so perfect. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, like I said, I'm working on a news page for all of our... Dark news stories that I still have in our email. And I'm going to take this and I'm going to put that on there so you guys can read it. Just stay tuned more for it on our website. Yeah, I got this one. 
Samar, uh, on my end, from definition.org. Okay. You never knew what these misunderstood songs were really about, which was uh, done by Brian Del Pozo, or Pozo. It's no secret that there's a lot more of some songs than meets the eye. Some have Sounds like a Transformer reference. Some have hidden meanings, meanings, while others are so deeply personal to the songwriter that the average listener couldn't possibly hope to understand. There are some completely misunderstood songs out there. Though songs whose lyrics have been so misconstrued by people over the years that the original tension was lost completely. Whether it is because of urban legend, misleadingly sweet chords that eschew sinister lyrics, or just plain misinterpretation. When the public gets a, gets hold of a song, it can morph into something entirely new. Is it be for better or for worse? Take a let's see. I'm gonna take a look at these commonly misunderstood songs, and let you know what you and of course whoever wrote this, let them know what you think. Um, okay, slideshow. <laughs> and the first one has to be for fucking R.E.M. <laughs> the One I Love by R.E.M. Yeah. Here's one more song that was never supposed to be a love song. The band actually almost didn't record the song because they felt it was too brutal really violent and awful, according to lead singer Michael Stipe. The title may be misleading, sure, but the lyrics sure aren't. Calling your lover a simple prop to accompany my time sure doesn't sound like a romantic overture. <laughs> okay, Pearl Jam. If you don't know who the fuck Pearl Jam is, get the fuck out the room. Even though they were kind of considered uh, almost like hippie at first. The song in front of me is called... Let me get rid of these fucking advertisements here. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, interested, interested. interested. Okay. Pearl Jam's Alive. Mike actually played that a couple times when he DJed. She <laughs> until I ended up throwing the disc and said, Boom! Boom! <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! I thought that was Alex that did that. <laughs> no, that was me. Because I could have sworn I heard Alex say, Turn that shit off! No, that was your father <laughs> saying that. With your grandfather, Alex and I went to the backyard. 
attach it to that fucking thing that goes in the machine. Right? Yeah, at the, di- the disc at the fu- at the fire age. Yeah, I took um, one of the best guns with a scope on it, <laughs> and I hate guns, but I for this, did. it was perfect. We we put the thing on a machine. We put the CD on it on that damn thing. Yeah. I cocked the gun, pulled it up, and I'm like, pull the bitch! <laughs> All you hear was, poof! <laughs> Off the thing, I'm just waiting, waiting. He's counting down, three, two, one, and I just said, ping! That thing said, <laughs> Fucking fireworks, it was beautiful. Wasn't that Richie's CD? I could have sworn a song crying. No. <laughs> okay. No. Wild Purge. He was crying because he loved the song. And I'm like, <laughs> done. That thing shattered in a billion pieces. While Pearl Jam's 1991 hit may initially sound like an anthem of preservance, particularly when singer Eddie Vedder belts out, Yeah, yeah, I owe, I'm still alive. A deeper reading reveals something else entirely. The track is actually based around Wiener learning as a teenager that the man he thought was his father was actually his stepfather and that his biological father was dead. He's still dealing with love. He's still dealing with the death of his father. All he knows is I'm still alive. That's totally out of the burden Vitor once explained to Rolling Stone. Okay. Oh, good God. That's more like out of the ball sack. Yeah. Okay, next song. Let me get rid of these fucking advertisements. Okay. Good riddance. Time of your life. By Green Day. <laughs> Green Day's acoustic ba- ballad became a massive crossover hit, particularly thanks to its use in the Seinfeld finale in 1998. The track, which its seemingly wistful lyrics about the passage of time, has become a favorite at proms, graduations, and weddings. Not mine. I said, fuck you. I ain't playing that shit. However, those happy couples probably should have explained the lyrics. Or examined the lyrics, sorry. Or at least the song's title just a bit closer. The the lyrics are not a tender goodbye at all but rather an angry rebuke against a girlfriend who will one day regret leaving the time of her life. Next. Semi-Sonic. Closing time. Never heard of these people. Probably a good thing. (laughs) Semi-Sonic's Closing Time has become an anthem for last calls around the world. As countless bars and clubs play the track at their last song of the night, as their last song of the night, not Paramike, he said, fuck you, I ain't playing that either. However, 
or actually, if someone wanted really to play it, he uh, said, uh, tip me uh, 40 bucks or more. However, the song's lyrics have little to do with a bar. Instead, they were initially written by singer Dan Wilson about his girlfriend's pregnancy. The band realized the bar con connection early on. However, and admitted they realized that's what audiences would think the song's about. That's a little hidden, uh, hidden something of figure it out. Ah! One of uh, Paramike's kind of favorite, favorite artists, Phil Collins. Yes! In the Air Tonight, which is actually one uh, a song that's misunderstood. Of course. Hold on. This Phil Collins track is thought by many to be one of the darkest hop hits of all, of all time. According to Urban Legend, the song tells the story of a man watching another man drown and doing nothing to save him. All supposedly seen by Collins himself. The singer then wrote the song, invited the man to a show, and sang it right to his face. The story spread far and wide in the early days of the internet. It was even mentioned in Eminem's hit, Stan, which contained the lyric, you know the song by Phil Collins. In the air of the night, in parentheses, sick about that guy who could have saved the other guy from drowning, but didn't. Then Phil saw it, all, uh, saw it all then at a show he found him. However, the story is a total fabrication. According to Collins, the song has no specific story to it at all. Let me say it again. According to Collins, the song has no specific story to it at all and is more a stream of consciousness of the feelings he had after his divorce. Would that be his first wife or his second wife? Had to be his first wife because I know he married twice. Uh, I don't remember. That's something Paramount can look up for look for look up for us. Yeah, but I got the song right here too. So okay. I don't know if I could play it or not. Let's see. Probably won't let you. Well, that's one way to find out. Let's see what happens. If it works. Hopefully. Hopefully, come on. Play it. Play it. It plays, but I it's not picking up. Hear it. Yeah, it's not picking up yeah. on this side. Since it's direct sound, I don't have the opposite side. Yeah. But I'll fit that in there somehow. Okay, this one, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. If you don't know who Tom Petty is, you really, really need to leave the room. <laughs> or, f or come up back from the rock. Good fact he's passed on. Huh? To the fact that he's passed on. Yeah, I know. 
the song by that by him and the Heartbreakers, "American Girl." "American Girl" is one of the late great Tom Petty's most beloved songs. The track melt. Uh, melded jangly 1960s guitars and late 1970s punk slash new wave influences to become a classic. Ending Petty's concerts right up to the final show before his untimely passing. Despite its hollowed status as a rock classic, the song's lyrics often have been misunderstood. For years, the song was thought to be about a girl who committed suicide by throwing herself from a residential tower at the University of Florida, which is located in Petty's uh, hometown in Gainesville. However, Petty himself categorically shot the story down in a 2005 book conversations with Tom Petty, Urban Legend. It's become a huge urban myth down in Florida. That's not all true. The song has nothing to do with that. But that story really gets around. They're really, they've really got the whole story. I've even seen magazine articles about that story. Is it true or isn't it true? They could have just called me and found out it wasn't true. In the same book, he explained the song's true inspiration came from his living, from his time living in California. I was living in an apartment where I was right by the, the by the freeway, and the cars would go by. And in Encino, near Le, uh, Leon Russell's house, and I remember thinking that that sounded like the ocean to me. That was my ocean, my Malibu, where I heard the waves crash, and it was just the cars going by. I think that must have inspired the lyric. Okay, we all we all know who Sting is. Yep. The police. Every breath you take. Mm. Also misunderstood. In two different versions. Hold on. Let me read this and you say your two versions. The Police's Every Breath You Take was one of the most successful singles of the 80s and has been the first dance at possibly hundreds of weddings since then. Actually, I remember that being played at my prom. (laughs) However, the track isn't a love song at all. Rather, the lyrics depict a dark story of obsession and stalking. Sting has said of the song, One couple told me, Oh, we love that song. It was the main song played at our wedding. I thought, well, good luck. He's also said, I think the song is very, very sinister and ugly. And people have actually misinterpreted it as being a gentle little love song, when it's quite the opposite. Now Paramike's going to say what he said. 
Well, due to the fact that, you know, Sting did that version. Yeah. And everything. And then years later, or now it's been past years, yeah. going back to the olden days, um, it was actually revised. Yeah. In, with um, P. Diddy, which was formerly known as Puff Daddy. Yeah. And um, uh, I can't remember that chick's name now. I don't know. But they redid that song and everything to more of a understanding style. Yeah. Um, and it was done in a way where it was for Notorious B.I.G. and Tupac yeah. and everything. Because in everyday life, for this new version, updated version, it was the path that you take and the way you walk it and how you foresee your interpretation of the way you want your future to be. Yeah. But now, with what's going on, it's like everybody has lost that. Except for the ones that stay true to it, is trying to continue the way that they want to run their future, their life, their community, and everything. And it's just like total now destroyed. Yeah. So that's the other version from the original when Sting first did that yeah every breath I take every move that you make now it's been updated to where now he includes P. Diddy and this other woman for how Notorious B.I.G. took his lifestyle yeah his dream his way into what he wanted to do and it wasn't for fame. It wasn't for fortune. It wasn't to be, oh, I'm better than everybody else. No, 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 no. He was doing it to, yes, get fame for the music he created. But the money didn't matter to him. It mattered more of getting the money to put back into his community. Yeah. Where he grew up, where he had hard times. Same way with Tupac. Yeah. He was doing the same okay. thing. Which one of them was West Coast? Or in East Coast? Was that Tupac that was East? Um, or was it B.I.G.? I don't fully remember. There's something I have to look up. But I know that Notorious B.I.G., he was for all over the place. Oh, yeah. Definitely all over the place. Tupac, I, I don't know. Either he he was for the West Coast, I don't know. East Coast, I don't know. Middle Coast, I don't know. It's something I have to look up. But he had the same vision. Okay. Just a little different from yeah. what Notorious B.I.G. was doing. That I do know. That was proven. Okay. But since there's two different songs out there, it, it's like... Which okay. one do you really... Nobody really remembers the very first yeah. 
one because it is just like boring to a lot of people that love music. Yeah, after hearing it probably almost every other hour on the radio. Right. Then when you put in P. Diddy, formerly known as Puff Daddy, and this other woman, which I can't remember, I think it was Faith Evans or something. Okay. Redoing it brought it more to where now people understand why Sting did the original one one way, but there was a lot of um, speculations, a lot of questions, no answers to be found. Conspiracy theories. That... And why the fuck did you do that? With that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> to now doing the updated version, people are like, oh, that's why you did your version, but there was nothing there. And when you put in P Diddy and Faith Evans, now we see why. Yeah. I guarantee you Sting was sitting at home and like, these fucking idiots. <laughs> Why did I have to live with idiots in this world? They should be <laughs> taken out. Seriously. Here's this that was that. This song, Blackbird. Was it a big fan? I listened for like five seconds like, nope. The Beatles. That's why I said I listened to five seconds. Nope. Blackbird has been one of the most heavily debated songs in the Beatles' legendary catalog. Primarily written by Paul McCartney. On the surface, the song sounds like a typical love song. However, according to McCartney, at various points over the years... The song's lyrics are actually a reference to the civil rights movement, which was happening in the U.S. at the time. It's still going on now. Oh, shit. Just a bunch of idiots are doing it. Third Eye Blind. One Hit Wonder. Semi-Charmed Life. Yeah, One Hit Wonder. I remember that fucking song. I do. I played it. Third Eye, Bl- Third Eye Blind's 1997 smash hit is best remembered for its pop sound and earworm uh, chorus of do-do-do-do-do-do. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm not even going to say the fucking thing. However... it was only a one-hit wonder. They sucked! However, that pop... So, sound belies the song's very dark underbelly. Lead singer and songwriter uh, Stephen Jenkins has explained that the song is actually about addiction. It's about a time in my life when it seemed like all of my friends just sort of tapped out on speed. That usually happened in the 90s. On the song's sound... He said it's bright and shiny on the surface, and then it just pulls you down in this lockjawed mess. The music that I wrote is f- for for it is not intended to be bright and shiny, for bright and shiny's sake. 
No, it was supposed to be for kill your fucking selves, you fucking moron. It's dark times. Bruce Springsteen, which Dave Schrader is a fan of. Born in the USA. <laughs> now, before people start slamming us with comments on, oh, the song was great in its time. Let me explain it here. Perhaps the most well-known example on this list, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA has been consistently misunderstood for over for more than 30 years. That's from a bunch of dumbasses. The song's biting lyrics tell the story of a young man's experiences being drafted, fighting in Vietnam, fighting in the Vietnam War, and the psychological scars that came home with it. However, the song's bombastic, bombastic musical arrangement hid the irony of its explosive Born in the USA. Chorus, leading many to believe the song, was simply a a fist-in-the-air gigolastic anthem. Springsteen, who particularly uh, bristled at the song, seemed name-dropped by then-President Ronald Reagan, attempted to clarify the song's meaning through numerous interviews and eventually introduced an acoustic version of the song that stripped away the bombastic elements. That's why I said a bunch of fucking idiots. Bonnie Tyler. Total Eclipse of the Heart. And Paramount just gave me a look like, what? Total Eclipse of the Heart is the one of the biggest power ballads to ever merit the name. It appeared on Bonnie Tyler's fifth studio album, Faster Than the Speed of Night. And it topped the charts for the whole year. Yeah, that was a bit annoying on the radio. <laughs> Eventually becoming her biggest hit. How many do- uh, What many don't know, though is that Total Eclipse of the Heart began as a love song for vampires. That I knew. The song was written by for Tyler by producer Jim Steinman after she rejected the first two songs he offered her. Going back to the books, Steinman suddenly remembered a song he had begun writing when he was working on a musical version of Nosferatu called Vampires in Love. Mm -hmm. He tweaked it and finished it, and we got one of the greatest love ballads of all time. If you listen carefully, you can still hear the echoes of a song about falling in love in the darkness. That's only if you can find the unedited version of that music. Other than that, the real one, you're not going to be able to hear it. No. That I do know. Even in the video, you're not going to be able to hear it. No. Well, I, I heard it. Sarah Bareilles, Love Song. I don't know who the hell that is. Yeah, that if you've ever watched... 90s song, I think. Hold on. 
if you've ever walked through a lobby with a piano that's free to use, or you listen to the radio 2007 at all, chances are you've heard the dis distinct chords of Sarah Bareilles' chart-topping breakout single. It would seem pretty easy to guess that a song called Love Song would be, well, a love song. But the chorus shoots that notion down as soon as it starts. Even more interesting, though, is the fact that this love song was never even about a guy or a girl, for that matter. Borellis wrote the song in a fit of frustration after her record label reacted coldly again and again to songs she had written. I started to get really insecure about it, and then I got really pissed off at myself for caring what anybody thought. Love Song was her way of saying to her label, This is me. Take it or leave it. Let me say that again, because I think uh, our third cat, Patch, has just kind of interjected his... What? No, he just woke up from a nightmare. Oh. So, I gotta go take care of him. Okay. This, the song, Love Song, was her way of saying to her label, This is me. Take it or leave it. It's a very good thing they decided to take it. Now, this one is from The Clash, London Calling. Why does that sound like London Bridges? It's a Fergie song. This song, though it evolved to take, a, to take on a wider meaning, including the common interpretation that it is a criticism of British politics and international uh, relations was originally about something much simpler. In 1979, a British newspaper ran a headline that warned that with rapid global warming, there was a risk that the Thames River might overflow and flood London. When Mick Jones found this out, he, in his own words, flipped. So the song is less about politics and more about a fear of drowning. Ah, John Mellencamp. Another person I could not stand from the 90s. Pink Houses. The gayest music song ever. John Mellencamp wrote Pink Houses as a rebuke of early 1980s Reaganomics and the conservative greed is good culture of the time. However, it's uplifting music and Ain't That America chorus often has led to the song being misunderstood by a simple patriotic tune. Those who've misunderstood the song include conservative political candidates and organizations who've used the song only to pre to receive public rebuke from the staunchly liberal Mellencamp. 
I thought John Bon Jovi's music was bad. Ah, pretty sure people remember the, remember the group Creed. The song from Creed that is actually understood. Uh, trying to get rid of these stupid ads here so I know what the fuck I'm reading. Okay. The song Higher by Creed. One of the 1999's biggest hits, Creed's Higher, has gone on to be the ballads, the, yeah, the ballads, has gone on to be the band's signature song and is emblematic of the post-grunge rock scene of the time. While on the surface, the song seems to likely either be about a drug-induced high or on the opposite side of the spectrum, Creed's publicized Christianity. It it's actually never it's actually not the take a drink of stubble that I'll online. Creed's publicized uh, Christianity. It's actually about neither. Instead, according to lead singer Scott Stepp or Stapp. The song is actually about the concept of lucid dreaming. Was I the only one that freaking knew that by hearing the damn song? Uh, the song, the Weezer, if anybody remembers Zen, probably not. Weezer, with the song Buddy Holly. Well, first of all, this song isn't really about Buddy Holly at all, but most people who have listened to it know that. Most of those people hear the lyrics, you know I'm yours and I know you're mine and that's for all time. And assume that the song is about a romantic relationship, but singer Rivers Kumono tells a different story. Which is in his words, it's about a particular girl I knew. It's about my commitment to her. My willingness to defend her. It's very platonic, not a romantic thing at all. Now, if you listen carefully to the lyrics, it turns out none of them are really explicitly romantic. People just assumed, based on the fact, that it's a guy singing about a girl. Which is exactly what Weezer is singing about. Oh, goody. Bon fucking Jovi. Always. I'm sorry, wasn't that a song by another band? Always. Yeah. Um... Really, really old band from like I think the fifties or the sixties. Not sure. Oh, saliva. That's that's why I think when I hear this, see the song always. Well, that was then. This this was like uh, like way back. Okay. 
You know, there was a song called Always, and one of the lyrics was like, Always and Forever. Yeah. That's a, That was like way back before Slava came up with the song in this one. Yeah. John Bon fucking Jovi. A band known for power ballads like I'll Be There For You and Bed of Roses scored one of their biggest hits in 1994's with 1994's Always. Perhaps due to their reputation as balladeers what a fucking way to say it many seem to ignore the darker underpinnings of the song's lyrics. John Bon Jovi explained, explained of the lyrics it's a sick little twisted lyric. So many people feel it's so romantic and so wonderful. But truthfully, this guy is particularly a stalker. He's a sick human being. Ah, Bob Dylan. Mr. Tambourine Man. Many think that Bob Dylan's 1965 classic, Mr. Tambourine Man, later famously covered by the birds, was an autobiographical song about the singer finding his music musical muse through drugs. However, the song is actually a tribute to touring musician Bruce Langhorn, who played in Dylan's bands and played a lar played a large Turkish frame drum, similar to a tambourine in performances and on recordings. I wasn't around. Bob Dylan was around, so neither was I. TLC, Waterfalls. That was Left Eye's last song ever. The popular cons popular conception is that TLC's nineteen ninety five smash Waterfalls is about slowing down, appreciating what one has, and not rushing into life or relationships. I could say something about that, but I'm not. <laughs> Someone out there knows what I mean on that one. I think that was on the album Scrub, I believe. While, hold on. While there's some truth to that, at least in the chorus, it ignores the fact that the song is about social issues of the, the mid-90s, including explicit references to HIV and AIDS in the lyrics. Sorry, Richie, I was right on that one, too. <laughs> I know, I just heard him say shut up. Yeah, T-Buzz, Left Eye, and Chili. Mm -hmm. That's what TLC stands for. Oh, God. Peter, Paul, and Mary. <laughs> I knew it would be too soon before I saw this fucking, fucking title. Puff the Magic Fucking Dragon. <laughs> really? Good Lord, I hated that fucking song. Puff the Magic Dragon was obviously about drugs, right? R wrong. Peter, 
Paul and Mary's 1963 hit, with lyrics based on a poem by a friend of band member Peter Euro, named Leonard Tip Lipton. Sounds like iced tea. That's I mean, how, iced tea you drink. That's how it came out. Actually revolved around a child who played with an imaginary dragon named Puff. There's actually a fucking animated movie on that. From the, from the 80s. Before getting too old for his imaginary friend. Uh, I still say it's about drugs. I don't give a shit. Who the fuck you think you are? If Buff. you don't fucking listen to John Paul and Mary and thought, oh, Puff, Peter Paul Puff. Mary. Get it right. Whatever. Peter Paul Mary. And you, and you li- actually listen to the song "Puff the Magic Fucking Dragon." You know the fuckers were on drugs singing it. Hell yeah. Or you were on drugs thinking, "Oh, it was a real good song." Lou Creed, Lou Reed. I don't know who that is, but is it did the song "Perfect Day"? Don't know who that is. That was way before my time. Lou Reed's Perfect Day has been used in numerous chipper, upbeat commercials for products, including Sony's PlayStation 4 and AT&T's cell, uh, cell service. Which is quite strange since it's a song about heroin. The track, often thought to be about the power of love, is actually about the high, about the high one feels after using narcotics. Well, it is a shocking thing. Madonna. Like a virgin. <laughs> oh my god. I remember when Alex did that song and died. Oh my god. I wanted to stab out my fucking eyes. Not my eyes. I wanted to stab out my ears. <laughs> no, you wanted to stab your ears, bleach your eyes, and then get a 357 and shoot him in the ass. <laughs> well, unfortunately, Richie won't let me use the gun. <laughs> Well, between you and him, they were try- you two were trying to figure out, okay, which one's going to shoot? take the 357 and shoot him in the ass? <laughs> I just like, yep, step back. <laughs> I actually ended up getting hungry, and I went to dinner. <laughs> no, I remember. Richie was telling Alex he totally sucked at it. And Alex said, okay, let's see you do better. That's and the only reason I wanted to stab out my eyes when Richie was doing it was because he dressed as fucking Jasmine. <laughs> While it may seem obvious that met that many of that Madonna's like a virgin is an uh, is an odd ode, sorry, O D E to a young woman having sex for the first time. And imp- impression surely helped by Madonna's numerous mid-80s performance wearing a wedding dress. The song was actually written by songwriters Billy, S- Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly about how vulnerable Steinberg felt getting into a new relationship. 
Steinberg told the LA Times years later, I wasn't just trying to get that racy word virgin in a lyric. I was saying that I may not really be a virgin. I've just battered romantically and emotionally like many people. But I'm starting a new relationship and it just feels so good. It's healing all the wounds and making me feel like I've never done this before. Because it's so much deeper and more profound than anything I've ever felt. Nope. <laughs> Not saying it. You got all you guys can insert your own sick versions and sick versions. Yep, down in the comment on our YouTube page. Maroon 5. Let me start with there. This one here once is trying to tell us that it's uh, dinner time. Uh, when I'm done with this? Yep. Did you hear that, monkey? When mommy's well, done with that last I'm one. done with this freaking article. When mommy gets done with the article, she'll have dinner. Maroon 5. Harder to breathe. I don't think I've ever heard that one. I don't know. Maroon 5's chart top debut song, album Songs About Jane was essentially a concept album about one of singer Adam Levine's ex-girlfriends. So it would make to think the album's hit, hit single Harder to Breathe was inspired by said relationship. However, according to Levine, the song actually came about due to pressure from the band's record company. In a 2002 interview, Levine said, That song comes sheerly from wanting to throw something. It was the 11th hour and the label wanted more songs. It was the last crack. I was just pissed. I wanted to make a record, and the label was applying a lot of pressure, but I'm glad they did. Another way of saying, okay, I made a good-ass fucking album. Shut the fuck up. Brian Adams. Yeah, but trying to get a song out in, for whoever you're with as yeah. a record company... You know, that's like putting way too much pressure on him. Yeah. I mean, you can't just come up with a song and then keep rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing until you get it right for 11 hours. Yeah. That's nuts. Now I know why that there's certain people that are artists yeah. that have taken time out of saying, okay, I have a production studio in my own crib or... I bought a building and, and made it there and everything, and you guys need to back off and let us do it the way we want to do it, and then we'll present it to you without being on a deadline. That, I think, Adam Levine needs to switch his entire career to. Yeah. Have your own music studios. Tell these idiots, fuck off. We're going to do the music, we're going to get it right, and then once we know we have it right, then we'll present it to the record companies. And then step two is, you guys, let us know what you think of it. If it needs to be tweaked, we'll retweak it on our own time. Yeah. That's what needs to be done. What also is hard, too, is 
uh, getting a fucking studio to take the music. Yeah, that's Alex, even worse. I've lost how, lost count how many times Alex tried. Yeah, that's even worse. And he worse. had really good fucking songs. Yeah, that's even worse. Brian Adams. Yeah, back to this clown again. I didn't forget to say it. Summer of 69. Brian Adams' Summer of 69 is such a powerful blast of nostalgia that it's easy to assume the Canadian singer, and I knew he was Canadian, and his writing partner, Jim Valance, wrote it about their own times as teenagers in 1969. Only problem? Adams was only nine years old in 1969. The song does contain some real allusions in the writers' lives. But the 69 number was, according to Adams, chosen as, as a reference to the 69 sexual position. <laughs> nine-year-old freaking uh, used as a reference. You ain't having sex at nine years old. Mm-hmm. Maybe not back then, but now, shit. Well, shit, 69's everyone's favorite number. <laughs> that is true. Nirvana. Smells like team spirit. Not gonna say anything bad about Nirvana. It is cultural uh, if you want to think about it. Nirvana's Smells Like Team Spirit has been hailed as a generational masterpiece pretty much since the day it was released in 1991. Only issue is, no one seems to know what it's really about. (laughs) Even Kurt Cobain himself. The title... Well, of course he wouldn't know. He was hocked up on drugs! The title famously came from band acquaintance Kathleen Hanna, who wrote Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit, on Cobain's wall. Not knowing that Teen Spirit was a deodorant brand, Cobain decided to use the phrase while crafting his words, the ultimate pop song. Oh, it... Yeah, he really... It really did pop, though. In Michael Ezered's Nirvana biography, Come As You Are, the story of Nirvana, Cobain said that he intended to describe what I felt about my surroundings and my generation and people my age. However, he contradicted himself in the same book, saying the song was making fun of the thought of having a revolution. Drummer and for and f- oh, drummer and future Foo Fighters leader Dave Grohl has gone on record. As saying the lyrics have actual have no actual meaning. Who are they gonna believe? Someone who can't who didn't know what the fucking lyrics were about, or someone who was actually in the band? 
<laughs> M-I-A. Who the hell that is? Paper plates. Sounds like something for gross. I think I've played that a few times. Many think M.I.A.'s 2008 hit, Paper Planes, was about a drug dealer. However, the singer herself explained that the song was actually about the immigrant experience in the United States. She explained, I was thinking about living in Bed-Stuy, whatever that means, waking up every morning it's such an African neighborhood. I was going to get patties at my local and just thinking that re that really the worst thing that anyone can say to, s to someone these days is some shit like what I want to do is come and get your money. People don't really like the immigrants or refugees contribute it to culture in any way. That they're just leeches that suck off whoever. Suck from whatever. So in the song, I say all I want to do, sound of gun shooting and reloading, cashier opening, cash register opening, and take your money. I did it in sound effects. It's up to you how you want to interpret America is so obsessed with money, I'm sure they'll get it. She kind of has a point. That's not the only thing she has a point in. She's also missing, uh, there's a bunch of dumbass motherfuckers that are causing wars. Yeah. The Beatles, again, Go. ticket to ride. <laughs> Never heard Screw of that. you, Well, Blizzard. we know Chris Jericho's a fan of the Beatles. If you ask Chris Jericho who he thinks is the best band, he's going to pick them. Yeah, because he only loves uh, two people in that whole thing. Well, that... Rainbow Star and uh, the other clown that uh, has a boulevard named after him. Well, it's actually because of his mom. That you can't knock him for. No. The Beatles' Ticket to Ride is thought by many to be a reference to a young woman riding a train to see her boyfriend. However, according to John Lennon, yes, the John Lennon, the song had a different meaning entirely. He claimed that the song actually referenced cards, indicating a clean bill of health carried by German prostitutes in the 1960s. The Beatles famously played in Hamburg, Germany, often prior to attending world, uh, prior to attaining worldwide fame. Yeah. I mean, shit. Who the hell are you gonna fucking believe? Uh, whoever's still alive from the band or John Lennon? There's only two people still alive from that whole fucking group: Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. Google Dolls. Slide. One hit wonders no longer around. Slide, the first single of the Google Dolls, 1998, album Dizzy Up the Girl, helped the group achieve superstar status. <laughs> On the surface, 
the worst title ever <laughs> by these idiots. I am sorry. Worst title ever, period. It is the worst title in history of fucking music from these idiots. On the surface, the fast-paced track seems to tell the classic rock and roll tale of young lovers standing together against the world. However, according to lead singer-songwriter Johnny Wazisnik, on an episode of VH1 Storytellers, there was more. There was much more to slide. In introducing the song, he said, "The song is actually about these two teenage kids, and the girlfriend gets pregnant, and they're trying to decide whether she should get an abortion, or they should get married, or what should go on." You too. Another UK band. One. As in the song one. Not number one. The spelling one. When YouTube released one in 1991. The song became one of the legendary group's biggest hits. In the years since. The track has come to be seen as an ode. To togetherness. Be it romantic, platonic, or fraternal. However, the track was actually written at the at a time when U2 was splintered and in disagreement about the band's future. According to Bono, in the official book U2 by U2, the song's tumultuous birth led to a melancholy set of lyrics the singer said there was melancholy melancholy uh, yeah melancholy about it but there was also strength one is not about oneness it's about difference it's not the old hippie idea of let's go live to let's all live together it is a much more punk rock concept it's anti-romantic we are one, but not the same. We get to carry each other. It's a reminder that we have no choice. I'm still disappointed when people hear the, the chorus line as got to rather than we get to carry each other. Like it or not, the only way out of here is if I give you a leg up the wall and you pull me after you. There's something very unromantic about that. The song is a bit twisted, which is why I could never figure out why people wanted it at their weddings. I have certainly met a hundred people who've had it at their weddings. I tell them, are you mad? It's a song about splitting up. The Guess Who? The Canadian band. American Woman. Is that a Lenny Kravitz song? To modern listeners, especially those more familiar with Lenny Kravitz's 1999 cover, I was right, American Woman. Was it? Huh? Was it? 
Guess who? The uh, the Guess Who Canadian band, American Woman. Those those more familiar with Lenny Kravitz's 1999 cover, American Woman, is a song about all all about sex appeal. The song's true meaning, as explained by co-writer Randy Bachman, had less to do with sex and much more to do with the Vietnam War and U.S. politics of the time. According to Bachman, we had been touring the States. This was the late 60s. One time at the U.S.-Canadian border in North Dakota, they tried to draft us and send us to Vietnam. We were back in Canada playing in the safety of Canada where the dance is full of draft dodgers who've all left the states. Co-writer uh, Burton Cummings said, what, what I said American woman, stay away from me. I really meant Canadian woman, I prefer you. It was all... All a happy incident. Okay, the band The Cure, whatever that means, the song Just Like Heaven. All, uh, while The Cure's Just Like Heaven song sounds like a typical love song, the lyrics are actually a bit more complex than that according to lead singer Robert Smith. Smith has said that the song is about hyperventilating, kissing and fading to the floor, and that some of the lyrics refer to his childhood memories, mastering magic tricks as a child. Though Smith has admitted, on another level, it's about a seduction trick, much from much later in my life. Okay, the, the song Imagine by John Lennon. While John Lennon's classic ballad, Imagine, could be viewed as a simple plea for world peace, the former Beatle and his wife Yoko Ono, whom Lennon later com acknowledged contributed a great deal more to the track than the solo credit in indicates. We're, ta we're tacking more specific issues than a general call for peace. In a 1980 interview with Playboy, Lennon co uh, commented on the song's mention of religion. The concept of positive prayer. If you can imagine a world at peace with no uh, demolitions of religion, not without religion, but but without this, my God is bigger than your God thing, that it could be true. The World Church called me once and asked, can we use the lyrics to imagine, just change it to imagine one religion? That showed me they didn't understand it at all. It would defeat the whole purpose of the song, the whole idea. Uh, good thing he didn't allow them to fucking change it. In a separate NME interview, Lennon said, 
imagine that there was no more religion, no more country, no more politics. It's virtually the uh, the commun communist manifesto. Though, uh, even though I'm not particularly a communist and I do not belong to any movement, there is no real communist state in the world. You must realize that. The socialism I speak about is not the way some daft Russian might do it or the Chinese might do it. That might suit them. Us, we should have a nice British socialism. Okay. Okay, another the runaways cherry bomb. Not the drink cherry bomb. This next song isn't quite misunderstood lyrically, but the story of its creation is. The runaways cherry bomb is an all-time classic rock song. And the by far biggest hit of Hall of Famer Joan Jett. But it wasn't written to be one, and the band didn't build their catalog around it. In fact, the song was actually written, written in about five minutes. According to the band's manager, Kim Fowley, according to Fowley, he... And Jet wrote the song for future band member Sherry Curry's audition because the rest of the Runaways didn't know the song Curry wanted to sing. The Portugal, the man, I don't know what the hell that who the hell that is. Feel, uh, feel it still. And by looking at him, uh, really doesn't have a good taste in clothes. While California band Portugal, the man's 1917 hit single, may initially sound like an OD, like an ode to singer John, John Gourley's young daughter, the song was actually written from a less personal, much more political place. In a 2017 interview, Gorley explained, it's another one of those lyrics that just kind of seeps in. With all the talk right now of building a wall at our borders and the Berlin Wall, it was so much just like the image that you had in your head growing up that these people were surrounded by a wall. And why do we need that? I kind of agree with him on that one. Okay. I'm going to continue this at the next one because I'm starting to get parched. Because I really don't know how long this list goes. <laughs> that's, that's like my other one. Okay. Jeez, stop it. But Jesus Christ. I'm going to keep it the way it is. And, um, and I'm going to, uh, continue where I left off. Yep. Uh, the next, um, next one. 
Yep, the next podcast show would be episode 14, I believe. Or we can do episode 13, part 1, something yeah. like that. Anyway, hope you guys enjoy it. This is Paramike for Everything Paranormal Podcast Show 2021. And in the dark side of Fuck You Everything is the lovely Gothic. I'm Paralore. Bye-bye.